Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up. Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. Hey, Composition of a Killer fans, Dr. Cassidy here. Today we're going to continue our study of the master's thesis, the development of a serial killer. As always, anything that we discuss in this podcast is not to be considered a clinical diagnosis. All right, so let's dive in. This is part three. Um, If you haven't listened to the last two, you might want to listen to those first. Um, And... It it will just make more sense if you listen to it sequentially. So we ended the last one talking about how fantasy can be a large, play a large role in some of these, you know, serial killers. And uh, he continues to say that eventually the fantasy is not enough to fulfill the need. Thus, When serial killers mature from their remote fantasies, their fantasies become a cognitive staging ground for actual crimes. Some fantasies include a cognitive rehearsal for sexual murder, but because of its constant repetition, the fantasy's cognitive rehearsal power diminishes, and that is when an individual seeks to act on them. In other words, it's the same, it's exactly the same when you're talking about children that need stimulus. You know, they, certain things will be, exciting to them for a while and then as when the new wears off they have to get something else that's just as exciting um adults do that too and of course this is a good example the the you know fantasies a lot of people uh, that have violent that are violent offenders that deal with like pornography they'll start out with just very vanilla pornography and then work their way up to you know, really horrific um, pornography that has a lot of violence in it. Uh, sometimes there's snuff pornography where someone actually dies. And of course, they're illegal, but that doesn't matter. Just because something's illegal doesn't mean someone's not going to do it, right? And usually when you have a serial killer who has this kind of personality, they're going to get it. They're going to get their their fix no matter what it costs. And so, in this context, we're talking about lives, human lives. So they get to the point where the fantasy is not really doing it for them anymore. And then they actually seek out um, a medium for them to actually play out their fantasy. Um, 
some fantasies include a cognitive rehearsal for sexual murder, but because of its constant repetition, the fantasies, I just read that, the fantasy's cognitive rehearsal power diminishes, and that is when an individual seeks to act on them. For those who have an impaired prefrontal cortex and experience such fantastic um, fantasies repeatedly, it becomes additionally difficult to control behaviors, and acting upon their fantasies seems like an easy way out. Ressler, Burgess, and Douglas suggested that fantasy can be a t- contributing factor leading to serial killers. Um, serial killing. Moreover, if the victim does not cooperate enough or the criminal act is hindered because of unanticipated circumstances, the serial killer's fantasy is unsatisfied, leading him or her to develop new and more violent fantasies in order to reach the same level of satisfaction. Miller says, perhaps some of us have secret fantasies that resemble those of murderers, yet we retain control of our actual behavior and remain law-abiding members of society. Whereas our involvement in such mayhem begins and ends at the level of fantasy, the perpetrator of serial killing or serial murder or serial homicide, those are the most common terms, goes further. For the serial killer, such fantasies are not cathartic, but facilitative. The first step, not the last. His fantasies build along with a neuropsychodynamically driven hunger that only the um, orgiastic release of torturing and murdering another human being will provide. What most people, typically men, may constitute a momentary journey into cruelty during the heat of battle, as, for example, in military service, becomes for the serial killer his life's guiding purpose and mission. That is why he's so relentless. That is why he will always continue to kill until he is dead or securely confined. Now, this particular study is seeking to determine reasons as to why a person would engage in committing multiple murders. Many aspects from the lives of the perpetrators have been studied. However, the worldview that portrays a serial killer as being a white male, an evil monster with an unusual appearance, having dysfunctional relationships, engaging in animal torture, or being sexually or physically abused in childhood, and therefore sadistically killing for sexual gratification should be challenged. And he, we repeat this, this is, this is repetitious of the first part of this um, master's thesis. You know, we have a, we have this preconceived idea of serial killers and we are so wrong on so many levels most of the time. Um, So it, you know, for us to look outside of, those characteristics that we deem as this is what's common, you know, we really have to think about it. And we really have to, in order for us to learn enough to protect ourselves, protect our children, we have to kind of think outside the box. And that's what this, that's what this guy, this uh, gentleman did with this master's thesis. He really looked at multiple theories, uh, lots of expert opinion, and used a lot of resources to come up with with these different um, opinions that he has throughout the article. As contemporary research shows, serial murderers do not always encompass the aforementioned traits or behaviors. Levin and Fox further point out that warning signs for most serial killers are not evident, and that most serial killers can go undetected. On the other hand, McDonald proposed a triad which suggests cruelty to animals, 
fire setting and recurrent bedwetting or aneurysis during childhood. Now, this is the McDonald triad that we talk about. I talk about in many, many of our different podcasts. I bring up the McDonald triad. You know, there's a lot of truth to the triad. And it is a part of a law of a larger set of characteristics from McDonald, but the triad is the most popular. And we tend to say if we have children who are cruel to animals, um, have issues with setting fires and are recurrent bedwetters, even into teenage years, that that are those are like red flags. And we we also can determine that it's a visible warning that the child is facing significant stress. So in early childhood, when we're looking at children, we're observing children, uh, trying to figure out what's the catalyst behind certain behaviors, our observations are more powerful than anything else. So to be able to sit and watch children and determine over a pretty lengthy amount of time that um, we have to watch them and see what it is that's going on, ask questions, figure out what their environment is at home. What is it that is the trigger and how can we, what can we put into place uh, as an intervention to stop this from happening, prevent it from happening. Um, and we don't want to forget, it's not just the act of stopping it. It's the act of preventing it in the future. We don't want to have to stop a behavior and have to continue that same process every single day. We want to stop whatever that behavior is and then try to figure out how to prevent it. And I would rather use preventative measures as what we call Band-Aid um, interventions that don't really work. Uh, if we're not, if we don't address the root cause of what is going on with these children, then when we're not around, who's going to do that? Who's going to to interfere and say, you know, this isn't how we act at school or this isn't how we treat our family. Let's think about, let's think about what's going on. Why are you upset? Who upset you? What did they do? Or what has happened that's causing you to do this? If we don't find the root cause, we're just repetitively, you know, reacting to the situation and we really need to be proactive and prevent it. Hickey suggested that not all children who face stress and indulge in these maladaptive behaviors go on to become serial killers. So true. No, they don't. You know, statistically, there's very few that become serial killers, but yet we have them. But such behaviors have been noted in the childhoods of recognized serial killers. Weatherby and others suggested that the McDonald Triad be considered as cautionary signs to parents teachers, and other authority figures indicating a need to help children presenting such behaviors. And certainly, if I am told about a child who is um, demonstrating these three characteristics then or three behaviors, then I'm, I'm going to want to address those, but also see what else is going on. You typically don't have just these three things. There's usually some antisocial behavior, um, you know, psychotic behavior. Uh, so, you know, even in our youngest children, we see these kind of really out of control situations. And those are huge red flags. I mean, these children need our attention and they need our interventions. And so I think 
I think the use of things like the McDonald triad checklist, like the ACEs, um, behavior, you know, studies on children are absolutely essential for us to be able to prevent and stop, prevent and stop the development of serial killers. <clears throat> so Borgeson and um, Kunal pointed out that the current typologies being used by criminologists are based on limited data and sample size, which serves as a limitation um, to form theories and generalized findings to larger criminal populations. And what that means, uh, if you've never heard of a limitation in a study, I'm putting on chapstick. <laughs> um, a limitation is something that you identify in a research project. This is why this is limiting. You know, we want to know these things, but here's what could prevent us from finding out all that we want to know, whether it be um, not being able to get access into a child's home, not being able to see what their home environment looks like. That limits your ability to to give a thorough and well-informed decision on that child. So there's a limitation in research as well. You know. There's a limited data and sample size with a lot of these typologies. So that's a limitation. Does that really, can you really generalize that information to the entire population? You can't. You can't. It, we just know that these are red flags. These are, you know, generalized findings, but certainly not findings that you would say, yep, this fits the mold for every single person out there who has potential or who is a serial killer. Using the same strategies, theories, and reasoning to investigate serial offenders limits law enforcement of officials and researchers' way of looking at this phenomenon. Because of the aforementioned reason, Borgeson and Kunal suggested that researchers treat such typologies, theories, and hypotheses as tools and not definitive facts when attempting to understand a serial offender's behavior. Likewise, Layton and Scrapic suggested researchers should approach with open minds while searching for knowledge relating to this phenomenon without preconceived assumptions or hypothesis, which is what we started out this, this study. In the first uh, segment of this, I had said, you know, we want to go into this very unbiased. We don't want to use our inherent biases in this. Um, we want to be able to look at things without any kind of filter. And be very open-minded about it. And that's what they're saying here. We should approach with open minds while searching for knowledge relating to this phenomenon without preconceived assumptions and hypotheses. Furthermore, every serial killer's drive to kill multiple victims may be unique, dependent on his or her history and experiences, and is therefore difficult to quantify. Any determination of the motives of these killers should be concluded from an examination of observable behavior. This is not different than the observations that we do in schools. We have to figure out what those motives are, and we typically get the best, most accurate information observing their behavior, and then really trying to break down what is the catalyst of that behavior. In other words, this topic of study is well suited to you to the use of qualitative methods which focus on drawing inductive conclusions from the analysis of data and emphasize the meaning of behaviors for each individual. The present qualitative study attempted to understand serial killing 
with a thorough analysis of the lives and behaviors of a small number of killers. So that's that. This is what he's introducing. This is my limitations. I'm wanting to understand. I'm going to use my qualitative data. Remember, qualitative is uh, quality. Quantitative is quantity. And qualitative is like interviews, observations, whereas um, quantitative, quantitative is numbers, statistics, those type of things. And you can have mixed methods, which is, you know, that's, that's what I'm very familiar with because that's what my dissertation was. It was a mixed methods theory. So he's basically telling us, He's using limited information on a small number of killers. We know that there's three. And his conclusions are going to be based on this, just this information. The aim of the current study was to compare detailed and descriptive accounts from the lives of three serial killers without keeping in mind assumptions and hypotheses in order to find possible commonalities or differences between them as a route to identifying possible life events leading to a serial killing. Starting from scratch, allowed the data to speak for itself. Which, you know, that's another way of him saying, you know, I started from scratch. I didn't take any preconceived notions with me. I started this very fresh, very new, so that the data would speak for itself. And if you have good data, it does speak for itself. If you have really good data, you know, gosh, you, data is so powerful if it's done correctly. And if it's utilized, you know, once it's collected and analyzed, it's so powerful. And there's so many parts of our lives that are affected by this type of study that we just aren't even aware of. So the grounded theory method is within the qualitative research approach, the grounded theory method was used to generate and analyze data. The term grounded theory incorporates two interconnected meanings. It firstly refers to a type of theory that emerges from or is grounded in inspection and analysis of a complex amount of qualitative data. So they're looking at data that's already in existence. They're looking at books that have been written. They're looking at medical reports, they're looking at court papers, interviews, um, all those type of things. Um, secondly, it denotes a method of analysis first developed by sociologists Glaser and Strauss in 67, which was further developed and adopted by researchers from an array of social science sciences disciplines. Because of its theory-building technique, grounded theory has gained a contemporary widespread appeal. According to Charmaz, the grounded theory method assembles sociological reality by conceptualizing and analyzing the constructed data. Grounded theorists analyze data gathered early in the data collection process. Unlike most traditional approaches that derive their hypothesis from existing theories, grounded theorists, being continuously involved in data collection, use the emerging theoretical categories to shape data collection thus studying analytical categories established while studying the data. Because of grounded theorists' continual involvement in data collection, they may face the need to follow up on recurring themes, which may lead them in unanticipated directions. And you'll see the, um, the product of this type of study would be 
when you're looking for, when it talks about they may face uh, the need to follow up on recurring themes, when you collect uh, uh, qualitative data, you have to look for a common theme. What are the common words that people are using in these interviews? What are the common actions that we are seeing among these three killers? Um, And can we, when we draw those out, you know, we can develop a theme. What's the overarching theme? That's what McDonald did. He basically took all this data, all the data that had been, you know, collected thus far. He took all of it and looked for recurring themes and uh, behaviors. And those, you know, top three were bedwetting, uh, cruelty to animals, and starting fires. That's your top three. So that's what you're doing in qualitative data analysis, you know, and grounded theory. Um, For the purpose of the present study, descriptive accounts of offenders' lives, their childhood, youth, and adulthood, were examined examined to determine potential theoretical categories which were used to analyze relationships between the key categories. This process integrated theories regarding possible etiologies of the serial killing behavior. This was achieved by opening an open by keeping an open approach towards data collection, considering information from previous liter- literature but not assuming the same. So even though some of this material that he used was part of a research on a um, a different theory. He did not accept the theory. He just used the data. He may come to the same conclusion, but he's not going to make that general assumption. Um, the process integrated theories regarding possible etiologies of the serial killing behavior, and this was achieved by keeping an open approach towards data collection considering information from previous literature, but not assuming the same. As the population being studied was either dangerous, deceased, or incarcerated, a major way to collect data was from publicly available information. And what would be some publicly available information? Can you think of things? Um, Certainly biographies that were written about someone. Uh, You would want to make sure that the sources were very good, reliable sources in those books. I would want to see medical records. I would want to see psychiatrist reports, any kind of any kind of clinical diagnosis. All those reports I would want to see. I would also want to see court records. Uh, If if you could get details of the crimes, the the more information, the better. Right. The more detail, the better. And sometimes that stuff's really hard to to read, really hard to to see. And. But if you really, if you really want to, you know, dive into the information and make some discoveries, you really have to face that. Uh, some of it's very difficult to read or see. Pictures are horrible. Um, so the method that he used, he did thorough search on Google by typing such terms as serial killers, famous serial killers in America, famous serial killers all over the world, and so on. This generated a list of 48 killers from all over the world, including serial killers, cannibalistic serial killers, cannibals with a single victim, people indulging in cultural cannibalism, and people who ate and or served their own flesh. From this list, the um, author selected, Millie Kate is with us, so she's trying to get to a 
a magnet. <laughs> Stop it. From this list, he selected three killers who were the most famous, prominent, and had rich data available. Who had, A, killed multiple victims, as per the aforementioned definition of serial killers. B, were arrested in English-speaking countries. And C, did not participate in cannibalism. So that's his reasoning for not picking someone like Bundy. He really just, he stuck to those who had a, a rich data available, who had killed multiple victims, who were arrested in English-speaking countries, and did not participate in cannibalism. And he came up with Gary Leon Ridgeway, which we know is the Green River Killer, um, Richard Ramirez, who killed 13 people in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and then Ted Bundy, American serial, serial killer who killed 20 to 30 young women in Utah, Colorado, and Florida. Um, he has some uh, details about their offense. Uh, there's plenty, plenty more but uh, of information, but he's narrowed it down. He's summarized it. Gary Ridgway was an American serial killer known as the Green River Killer. He was convicted of murdering 48, maybe 49, um, young female prostitutes and runaways in Washington State between 1982 and 1998. Sheltering immense rage toward women, Ridgway unleashed his serial killing career on prostitutes, most times he choked and strangled prostitutes with his bare hands or with the help of items like an extension cord or a towel. He killed them when he was close to ejaculating or in the middle of having sex with them, thus making him ejaculate. His murder sites include his house, truck, motels, and outdoor areas like forests. After dumping victims, he went back to the sites to engage in necrophilia, which, of course, is having sex with dead bodies. Um... He is one of the, he is a, his typology, it's sexually motivated, but it's also motivated by power. Um, you know, he got off on the kill um, and, you know, continued to go back and try to relive that when he was engaging in necrophilia. Richard M Ramirez, uh, he was an American serial killer who killed 13 people in Los Angeles and San Francisco. With an aim to burglarize homes, Ramirez also spread fear through his sexually sadistic, violent murders. He was a Satan worshiper, and he killed his victims, women, men, and children, in the late hours of night or right before sunrise. He first murdered the men or boyfriends, raped the women, sometimes made their children see his sexually sadistic acts, and at times he also molested children. His methods included stabbing, beating to death, or shooting the victims. After his murders, he would ransack his victims' homes and sometimes draw the sign of Satan's pentagram and then run away. He was, he's, if you recall from the first podcast, the first of the series, he was one of those that the press absolutely loved because he wasn't necessarily a bad-looking guy. He wasn't bad-looking, per se, and women just flocked to him. I mean... He, up until he died in prison, he was getting hundreds of letters a day from women wanting to have a relationship with him. And, I mean, we, the psychology of that is just crazy. Why women pursue that, and I'm sure men do that too, but overwhelmingly it's women. I mean, the, the trials, his trials were, and hearings, women were, you know, standing room only, uh, lines outside the 
you know, door. It's, it's crazy. Even though they knew he was a Satan worshiper, a horrific, sadistic, violent murderer um, who killed and molested children, and they were still attracted to him. So I think those people, <laughs> hmm, that's a whole nother conversation. Ted Bundy, he was born Theodore Robert Cowell. He was an American serial killer who killed 20 to 30 young women in Utah, Colorado, and Florida between 73 and 74, and then 78. Whether at university campuses, parking lots, or the Lake Sammamish State Park, Bundy adopted an interactive way to kidnap his victims. He would fake a fractured arm or leg and then ask for assistance with his boat or his books or dress and adopt a persona of an authority figure. He would then knock his victim unconscious and drive her into the wilderness to be raped, sodomized, and strangled. And he did that. His last, he was, you know, of course he was very active from 73 to 74. And then we see four years later in 78, he became active again. That's when he escaped from jail and went on that rampage where he went into the girl's uh, sorority house and killed, I think, five, five young women in their beds. There was one that survived. So. You know, he was active for one full year, then went kind of dormant and then was arrested, you know, for all these other murders and then talked, you know, basically took an opportunity to escape jumping out a two story window at the courthouse. Um, Very opportunistic individual. He didn't let many things slide by him. So data collection, um, as much as possible, all the available information about each of the three killers was accumulated. He said that he found the majority of the information from books written about each serial killer, and these books included their taped, transcribed, and or summarized interviews, parts of trial transcripts, which the authors attended, and secondary information with people who knew the serial killers. And these are very rich sources of information. Um, the The trial transcripts, from people who were actually in attendance, that is usually incredibly good information. And if you can get multiple people that were in the same trial, you typically get a couple of different um, perspectives because no matter how hard we try, we always have a bias. We always have some inherent bias um, and it affects the way we write. It affects the way we talk. It affects our opinions. And so if you can get multiple different people who are in that same trial or same court hearing or whatever, you're going to get a much broader picture of what actually happened. Primary sources. Although a variety of sources were consulted as data, several sources were particularly valuable. Keppel and Burns is how is about how Ted Bundy Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, offered to help Keppel in investigating and finding Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. Robert Keppel was the chief criminal investigator for the Washington State Attorney General's office. Keppel has been an investigator and or consultant to more than 2,000 murder cases and over 50 serial murder investigations. So I think we could easily say he's an expert. Keppel was responsible for investigating and catching Ted Bundy, and he successfully did so. When in 1982, the hunt for the Green River Killer began, Bundy wrote from death row to offer his help in catching the killer. The book reports um, interviews with Bundy where Bundy was educating Keppel to understand serial killers. And on the other hand, Keppel was trying to obtain confessions from Bundy. And, you know, that's one of the, a lot of people who worked with Bundy or who dealt with Bundy said it was such a shame that he did not, the judge actually said this during his, um, during his, sentencing, that it was a shame that he had used all of his knowledge for these bad things because he was so talented and so intelligent. I mean, he was going to be an attorney. He studied law and was very successful um, up until that point. So it's, you know, it is a shame. It's a shame that somebody who has such potential to do great things um, had this had this penchant to be a, a serial killer. Um, Michaud and Ainsworth is based on more than 150 hours of tape recorded interviews with Ted Bundy while on death row. With the help of the taped interviews, the book outlines the process of Bundy's urges to his sexually sadistic serial murders. Michaud was a journalist and staff editor and reporter for Newsweek and Businessweek magazines. Ainsworth was an investigative reporter for ABC's 2020, a bureau chief for Newsweek, and an editor for daily newspapers such as the Dallas Morning News and Dallas Times Herald. The contents of Michaud and Ainsworth's interviews with Bundy helped break Keppel's barriers to gain a confession. Michaud and Ainsworth further explored Bundy's life with the tape recorder interviews with Bundy while on death row. That's some very good, I mean, excellent resources. Decker is an account of Ramirez's thievery, rape, torture, and murders. Information in this book comes from interviews and official police and court records, and the book is based on and starts from his childhood in El Paso to his crimes in San Francisco and Los Angeles. The author, Clifford Lindecker, was a former daily newspaper journalist and an investigative reporter with 18 years of experience at the Philadelphia Inquirer, Rochester Times Union, Fort Wayne News Sentinel, and several other Indiana newspapers. Carlo describes Ramirez's childhood in El Paso to his crimes in San Francisco and Los Angeles. This book is based on nearly 100 hours of interviews with Richard Ramirez while he was on death row. The author, Philip Carlo, was American journalist um, and a best-selling biographer for Thomas Patera, Richard Kuklinski, and Anthony Queso, and Richard Ramirez. 
rule in 2004 outlines the two decades of intense investigations to catch Gary Ridgway. This book includes information from official police, police records, transcripts, photographs, and maps. Anne Rule did not know Ridgway, but apparently knew her and attended her book signings. Um, a former police officer and a civilian advisor to the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program Task Force, Anne Rule presents and validates a comprehensible account of the hunt and investigation of Gary Ridgway. Prothero and Smith is an account by Ridgway's co-lead defense attorney, Mark Prothero, who spent years representing Ridgway. Smith is an award-winning journalist who contributed as an investigative reporter on the Green River murder case. Information in this book was obtained from various interviews, transcripts, and the author's personal recollections and notes from conversations with Gary Ridgway. Gary Ridgway was very upfront once he was caught, very upfront with what he did, uh, he was involved in hundreds of hours, um, and and a lot of that was allowing him certain freedoms in prison or certain advantages that most other criminals didn't get so that he would give them information on the people that he killed. And sometimes he, you know, sometimes he um, sensationalized it. He would tell them lies and they would go on these trips, take him out into the field where he said he could find the body, but he was just manipulating them. And then when they would get to the point where they were going to shut down everything, where they were going to shut everything down, he would, he would, you know, come back and be like, okay, fine. You know, I'll tell you, Let, let's, let's go. I'll show you. And he did that so many times. They were really frustrated with him. Um, and Bundy did the same thing. There's a lot of manipulation. Because they do know they hold the power. If you want, you know, if you want closure for families, if you want justice to be served, it's typically thought that you can, you know, instead of giving them the death penalty, you'll give them life in prison if they'll tell you information about the victims and maybe where to find their bodies. So, you know, that's why we see a lot of, you know, they may be charged with you know, capital murder and all this stuff. But sometimes they're not convicted of the absolute worst. They get life instead of death um, row or, you know, it, it's, it's a means to an end, really. It's a negotiation that shouldn't have to happen, but it does. Um, of course, the data was collected and analyzed using the methods of grounded theory. And this method analyzed data from the beginning of the data process. Coding categories were generated in an ongoing process while data was examined, thus allowing the data to drive the analysis. So you, you're looking for um, themes. You're looking, you're coding your information. You're coding these interviews. You're coding the, the books. You're looking for themes, you know. You're looking for topology, if you will. And you, you, you get all of that collected, and that kind of shows you which way you're, you're story is going it gives you it drives the data analysis this is what this means this is what we can say about this person based on all these interviews based on all this um, information that we've gathered this is the overwhelming consensus um initial coding facilitated the constant comparison of data to find similarities and differences within the 
information collected for each serial killer and also between serial killers. This process of constant comparison was accomplished by paying attention to and coding important lines and sentences or parts of it from every source that was read. So he really just broke down everything that he was reading and and looked for those, you know, sentences that were powerful, powerful words and um, powerful actions. This helped identify, record, and detail important fragments, similar and dissimilar, of data relating to serial killers' lives. Through this, he maintained or he remained open to the data, paid attention to the nuances, explored leads, identified implicit concerns, and dissected and compared each explicit line or statement within a serial killer's life and or between serial killers. Lines of data were compared to the conceptual conceptualization of previously coded lines from other sources. Thus, line-by-line coding helped him think critically, asking questions about the data and identifying significant commonalities, differences, and or contradictions within the data on a particular serial killer or between serial killers. So he took information from all three of these men and compared it. What were some commonalities? What were some differences? Um, What were some contradictions? This person did it. This person did it. This person didn't do it. Why didn't this person do it? If these two people are doing it, why did this one not do it? Could we generalize that information? No, because there's not enough. You don't have enough sources. You, You would need to do a study of, let's say, 200 serial killers or 100 serial killers. And then you could generalize. But... Three is not three is going to give you ideas. It's going to give you commonalities. It's going to give you differences, but it's not going to give you a generalized um, theory. Uh, these categories and their interrelations encompass possible theories regarding the etiology or causes of these killers' behaviors. The initial coding phase was temporary, comparative, and grounded in the data, which helped him to see the world through the offender's eyes and facilitated new ideas about the etiology and psychological makeup of serial killers. From the very beginning, while comparing and reviewing information with the information, information with code, code with code, codes of information with other codes, and codes with categories and concepts with categories, the process of memo writing was embarked upon. Memos were his notes on developing conceptual relationships and ideas. I can imagine... (laughs) I can imagine his room maybe his office, uh, covered, the walls covered with all these themes. And then on maybe like that really big chart paper that we stick to the wall um, and write on, and then have post-it notes and post-it notes and post-it notes of all these themes and categories. And then as you get, as you gather all that data and all of that starts growing into just this bigger, you know, animal, you're able to condense those ideas when you find those commonalities. Um, And you can make broader categories that encompasses maybe two of those codes. Um, So that's, that's how that works. And it's a lot of work and I admire him for this. It's so much work, but it's so interesting. If you love the topic that you're working with, uh, it's not work. You know, you discover something new all the time and it's, It's exciting work. You know, it can be really exciting. During the coding process, in vivo codes were formed, which included the offender's special terms that captured significant meaning or experience. These codes reflected offenders' essential assumptions, meaning 
meanings and their views. While looking for implicit meanings, I look, he looked for how these meanings may have been constructed and acted upon. On one hand, this initiated new categories while further comparing data, and on another, it focused on which categories a particular code suggests. In short, in vivo codes mirrored assumptions and worldviews of the offenders, including meanings that frame their actions. Therefore, studying these helped him to explore leads to develop a deeper and better understanding of what they meant. The next step was to generate focused codes, and these were the most frequently occurring or significant initial codes. These significant initial line-by-line codes were studied to synthesize and explain larger fragments of data. If you've never seen a line-by-line coding, you can you can Google that, and you can see you literally go line-by-line looking for those action verbs, looking for, you know, adjectives, anything that, that helps to build this um, idea of a person or their purpose, whatever it is you're looking for, but in this case, of course, serial killers, and what causes them to do what they do. So line-by-line line coding is time-consuming, but it's very effective. As part of the focused coding process, theoretical codes were highlighted to show possible associations between categories. These theoretical codes further emphasized how essential codes are related to each other as possible hypotheses. After the formation of theoretical categories, more data was collected to fill in the gaps and further refine these categories. So he basically, you know, created these categories based on the data and then went back through it and determined if what if there were gaps in the information, if he needed to do research a little deeper into this area or that area, and then he would refine those codes. This established differences and relationships between categories relating to data within and between serial killers. More appropriate and relevant data was collected to elaborate and hone the categories in emerging theories. And when no new properties were found to develop a theoretical category, or no relationships were established between categories, theoretical saturation was achieved. Basically, we would call this an exhaustive search. You have researched so much, so much material, that now everything you look at, you already have. So you're just it's just repetitive. So you can stop looking. That's the idea. You can stop looking because you have covered pretty much an exhaustive search of everything available on these people or this subject. So when you hear somebody talk about an exhaustive search, someone has really been, I mean, it's just very deep and time consuming and it's usually a longitudinal study because of that. Um, after the formation of, let's see, this established differences in relationships and then more appropriate and relevant data was collected to elaborate and hone the categories in emerging theories. With the help of memos, categories were sorted to fit them into emerging theories. Using this process without keeping in mind assumptions and hypothesis enabled him to gather information with an open mind. He started from scratch, which allowed him the detailed and descriptive data to speak for itself. Commonalities and differences between the three serial killers served as a route to identifying possible life events and factors leading to serial killing. Um, 
I'm looking at the time. Do I have time to dive into this? Yeah, let's talk about it. So with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's look at their biographies. Ted Bundy is the first one that he covered. Ted Bundy was born into a stable, loving, lower middle class Methodist family. His mother had him out of wedlock and therefore his grandfather pretended to adopt him. And at age four, Bundy and his mother moved to Tacoma, Washington. Within a short span of time, his mother married an army cook, and Bundy was forced to live in a meager lifestyle, leading him to resent the rich and fortunate. Bundy's classmates remember him to be loving, intelligent, and popular. However, as reported by Bundy, this things changed in high school, and he seemed to have lost his self-confidence, becoming more alienated, and did not perform as well in school. In 1965, he enrolled at the University of the Puget Sound, but Bundy felt lonely and unfamiliar with the surroundings. In 67, he transferred from the University of the Puget Sound to the University of Washington's Asian Studies program. Here, Bundy met Marjorie, who went to school at the University of Washington and was from a wealthy family in San Francisco. The two became a couple and was the start of Bundy's first serious relationship. While he was walking around the street one evening by chance, Bundy watched a woman undress through a window. After this incident, he began to look for more opportunities to see women undress. Bundy was gra- was granted a scholarship to Stanford and followed Marjorie to San Francisco. In San Francisco, Bundy's performance in Chinese language studies dropped. Marjorie broke up with him and he returned to Tacoma. At this time, he engaged in thievery and voyeuristic activities. Um, alongside Bundy, entered the world of politics and working on campaigns. Bet y'all didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, he worked on campaigns, you know. Um, In September of 71, he was employed at the Seattle Crisis Clinic, and he graduated from the University of Washington with a psychology degree in 72 and was accepted at the UT College of, of the Utah College of Law. But he dropped out of law school, and this was the time he began trolling for victims. Ted Bundy was a mobile serial killer who committed his murders in California, Colorado, Florida, Idaho, Oregon, Utah, and Washington. I thought when I read that earlier, he only has maybe three states. And I thought, no, that's not right. There's more than three states. Um, In January of 89, Bundy was executed in Florida. But there's so much that happened in between. This is a this is a very superficial summary. Let me just say that. Um, the next one is Gary Ridgway. Ridgway was born in 49 in Salt Lake City, Utah, into a working class family and was one of the three sons born to his domineering mother and submissive father. He graduated from high school in 69 after being held back two grades. He was a slow learner. He committed arson. He stabbed a six-year-old boy and suffocated a pet cat. Talk about red flags, red flags, red flags. Um, He joined the Navy in 69 and decided to fight in Vietnam and was sent to duty station in San Diego. 
It was during this time that he discovered Filipina prostitutes and contracted a venereal disease. That was significant. That was a very significant event for him. He was honorably discharged in 71, and Gary Ridgway was married three times. His first two wives had affairs and divorced him. His first marriage in 70 ended in divorce in 72. His second marriage in 73 lasted until 1981, just one year before he embarked on his murderous career. So the seeds were planted back in the 70s, where really in the late 60s. And it really took him, he probably survived on fantasies and, you know, being able to indulge in those fantasies until they just didn't work anymore, right? Just like the information we read earlier. Um, but then around 81, well, 82 is when he started killing the prostitutes. His son was born to his second wife in 75, and then he married for the third time in 88 and legally separated in 2002. His third wife said that they had a happy marriage and that he was a reliable, regular employee at the same job. He was a truck painter in a factory for 32 years. I mean, for 32 years, he held the same job and was considered a reliable employee. He eluded police by leaving fake evidence at the crime scenes and made sure to trim the victim's fingernails. So do you think he's an organized or a disorganized killer? Remember those terminologies from, I believe, the second podcast on this? He, he's an organized serial killer. He thought things through. He planned these things. He took fingernail clippers with him. Um, you know, he brought pieces of evidence with him to leave to throw off the cocks. So that was one reason he was so very successful. He was very organized. And, and let me say, just from our, when you, when you look at these serial killers and you think, oh, they're all creepy looking, they're all, they act funny, you're going to know that they're bad from the minute you see them. You would not think that about Gary Ridgway. He just looked like, a, I would call him like a mousy little man that wouldn't probably hurt a flea. He just seemed, probably like his father, very submissive. Um, But the fact that he was able to be married that many times, I mean, he had to have some kind of personality or charm to him, right? So he, for me, it's just, it's just an anomaly. He's kind of a weird, he's a weird one for me. Um, Richard Ramirez Well, DNA actually led to the arrest of Gary Ridgway in 2001, and he admitted to his killing of almost 50 prostitutes. 30 to 40 is the number. But again, you recall we talked about how they may think maybe there is 50 or 60, but they can only prove 20. Um, And then sometimes they lie. You know, in these interviews, they lie and manipulate situation. You're not dealing with honest people here. So if you if you think you're going to sit down. And they're going to tell you the truth. I mean, they may tell you pieces of the truth to manipulate. Millie, our neighbor's dog is barking. Nope, we're not barking, okay? Um, <clears throat> but you may not get, you may not get um, 
the truth. And so you have to figure it out. You have to figure out what's true and what's not true. Richard Ramirez was born in El Paso, Texas on February 28th of 60. He went through difficult times while growing up. He witnessed violence and physical abuse on his brothers by their father and his cousin, Mike, who introduced him to drugs, thievery, and sexually sadistic pictures and stories. Because of these influences, Ramirez always almost indulged in petty crimes and became alienated from his parents. At 12 years of age, Ramirez witnessed Mike kill his wife. In 77, Ramirez was sent to a juvenile detention center for a series of petty crimes. He was also put on probation for marijuana possession in 82. And soon after this, he moved to California and continued to commit similar crimes such as burglary, possession of cocaine, and car theft charges, which resulted in a jail sentence. Ramirez committed his murders from 84 to 85. And then in 89, uh, he was 29 at that time. He was convicted of 13 murders and five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. He was sentenced to die in California's gas chamber. And let me go back and say on Gary Ridgway, he has one of the most distinctive childhoods that shows, you know, he they said that he had a domineering mother. She was the one who, she was the one, the mother who really degraded him for peeing in the bed and was just a horrible, I mean, she was a horrible mother just, just from his accounts, um, really messed with him. And so you would have to, I would have to say probably there's attachment issues there. He probably never felt loved by his mother or accepted by his mother. It's always his mother. There's very few accounts of anything about his father. It's his mother that is seen to be, is believed to have been the catalyst in the development, his development into a serial killer. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, mothers, mothers are very powerful people. You know, we are very powerful and we have the ability to, you know, make, you know, a wonderful child and help them grow and be productive members of society, loving and caring and have a normal family on their own. But we also have the power to absolutely screw somebody up so bad that they turn into a serial killer. Um, and I'm not, you know, this, his mother may have been you know, attacked and abused and all kinds of horrific things during her childhood, which would make you maybe make you think, why would she want to do that to her child when she knows how it feels, Millie? But, um, you know, there are just mean people in this world. It could just be that. There are just mean people in this world. Well, his results, the grounded theory method was utilized to find commonalities and differences between the three serial killers. And, Without hypothesis or assumptions, he began collecting data with only one question in mind. What has led these offenders to commit such crimes? Analysis began early on in the data collection process, but unlike processes in quantitative data collection, which uses established codes and categories, he created codes by defining and giving meanings to data. Initial line-by-line coding involved the naming of each line of data. So taking the smallest statements lines apart and studying their implicit and or explicit meanings enabled him to better understand and shape emerging analytic categories. Initial line-by-line coding was followed by focused coding, which incorporated significant initial codes, which were then developed into categories to formulate factors. 
For example, one of the categories was stress and trauma, and that came into being with the help of the following few line by line codes for each serial killer. I love that he did this. I love it because anybody can read this and understand what he did, what the process, what the methodology was. So here's the here's the line by line codes that he's giving. Ted Bundy, failure in law school and attending a second-rate law school, a repeat of his 1967 Chinese studies, giving up on his Chinese studies, failure and inability to succeed, vent, tension, and frustration, need to kill depending on several factors, principally stress, the in vivo code, stress and its long-term effect on Ted Bundy's personality, in vivo code. So he would read these and he would take out the you know, the significant words that related to and described Bundy. Ramirez, his sentences were observed physical abuse on brothers, observation of father's anger and self-harm, witnessing sister-in-law's murder, effect and negative, violent influence of witnessing sister-in-law's murder. Um, I mean, those are huge themes, huge themes and huge events that will cause you to to be um, damaged, right? Gary Ridgway, the sentences uh, used were dissolution of first, mar- first two marriages leading to stress, stress and adjustment issues after the first wife left him. That's an in vivo code. Stress and adjustment issues after second wife left him. Pressure and stress to perform sexual acts in a hurry. And then as a result of the two phases of the coding process, the following factors were identified. So out of all of those sentences, plus many, many more, many, many more, these are factors that he identified. Stress and trauma, power and control, need for belonging, belonging, loneliness, low self-esteem, sexually sadistic and violent pornography, the American culture, peer influences, Satanism, parent relationship patterns, and then neurodevelopmental complications. And those are excellent. Excellent. And they go a little deeper than what what the norm, what we we typically think, right? It's interesting to me that he says the American culture. You know, how does the American culture how does that impact someone you know, or affect someone to become a serial killer. But it does, you know, he found this in the data and the data speaks for itself, right? Um, All right, so we're going to start analyzing these codes um, in the next series. Um, So it'll be the fourth segment of this master's study. And we will find out exactly what each of those terms that each of these codes that he came up with, what they mean and what he was able to turn them into, um, which I think is going to be, I mean, such an eye opener. Um, I love new information. I love it when you get different perspectives. It's certainly, um, it's certainly Uh, another perspective that I think helps us understand a little bit deeper what happens to these people. So as always, if you have questions or thoughts, you can email me at drkimberlycassidy89 at gmail.com. 
you can check out my um, TikTok page. You can check out my Facebook page, um, Instagram, all of those. Um, and you can get links on all of those to all of the podcasts that I have um, published. So I hope you enjoyed today and I hope you get to listen the next time that we're together. Have a great day. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.